2: Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
3: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the show where America is the star and the American people. And we love our listeners' stories Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. Our next story was made into a 2014 motion picture directed by Angelina Jolie, based on the 2010 non-fiction book by Laura Hillenbrand, Unbroken, a World War II story of survival, resilience, and redemption. While some of the most remarkable parts of Zamperini's story were left out of the film, you will be hearing them told now by the man himself. And we're telling this story because on this day, in 1917, Louis Amperini was born. We'd like to thank the folks at Vision Video for giving us access to the footage you're about to hear. Let's take a listen.
4: Uh, my name is uh, Louis Amperini. I was born January 26, 1917 in Olean, New York. I moved to California for my health. I had pneumonia. (laughs) And um, so ever since I was two years old, I lived in uh, Torrance, California, just south of LA, about 20 miles. And uh, I'm afraid I was in constant conflict with the Torrance police. I was a a rascal, and I think it all started with the, I couldn't speak English. And uh, the other kids were teasing me. They wanted to hear me swear in Italian. You know, these were your bullies, they call them today. so my dad got me some weights and a punching bag, and I started getting in shape. And so then after a few months, I started fighting back. And when I started fighting back, they stopped teasing me. But in the meantime, I continued with my errant ways, and I had been uh, dissipating. I started, started smoking when I was five, and uh, during that time, it was prohibition. But everybody made beer, wine, and other things, and we knew who made it. And when they are at the movies on Saturday night, we would hijack the stuff. And even if they knew we took it, they couldn't turn us in to the police or they'd go to jail. So that was my life as a teenager uh, until my brother got me out on the track, uh, what they call an interclass track meet. And uh, the pains of exhaustion, that's the worst. And that was it, no more running. So a week later, we're having our first dual meet with Narbonne, Narbonne High School. And everybody insisted I represent the school in this race. The same 660-yard run, and they finally talked me into it. Uh, the first two runners from Narbonne had finished, and their third man was ahead in- of me about 50 yards ago. And I wasn't about to pass him, you know, until the students, a thousand students from my high school, started screaming, Come on, Louie. Well, uh, those were beautiful words to me because I had no idea that anyone at all knew my, knew my name. I hear a thousand students hollering, Come on, Louis!" and that tasted pretty good and I just got up a little adrenaline, I suppose, and I finally nipped this guy at the tape about six inches and came in uh, third. Uh, So after that, I I thought about that recognition. That was important to me, and I think it's important to all athletes. The the, the thing that inspires you and creates a desire to go ahead and become a champion is uh, recognition. And so that night I had to make a decision and that was no doubt the first wise decision of my life. I decided to go all out to become a runner. Now, you, considering my life, you think that was an impossibility. And my family thought it was an impossibility, my brother thought, but I made up my mind and I became a fanatic trainer. No more dessert. I ran everywhere, no hitchhiking. Redondo and back four miles, of and back. I'd run like 12 miles on a Saturday. I'd hit the mountains, run around lakes, jump, on, and I got to where I liked it. I was not getting tired anymore and fatigued and uh, enjoyed mainly not running around the track but running in the wilderness and jumping over streams. I can remember on a number of occasions chasing deer down a hill uh, just for the fun of it. And so all that running, and in those days there were no stopwatches around, so I had no idea how fast I was running. didn't even care. I just started enjoying running. And finally, uh, at the end of uh, summer, the first... Uh, running race was a Far West AAU, cross-country at UCLA, two miles, about 101 runners. When the race was over, I won by a quarter of a mile, or over a quarter, and I couldn't believe it. I said, no, I'm sure I cut a corner. I wouldn't take credit for winning. And the officials said, no, all the challenges are in, you passed every checkpoint. And uh, they said, by the way, you broke all three records, Class A, Class B, and Class C, and you ran the two miles in 957 which was comparable to college running and I was a sophomore in high school. So that did it. I knew that hard work was the answer, and from then on, I never lost a race for three and a half years. The best, uh, the, uh, the second best 5,000-meter runner in America was coming to California to run, to draw a big crowd and so forth, and my brother said, I want you to train, you got two weeks, I want you to run against this guy. And we had no hopes of the Olympics, just run against him to see how close you can get to a fellow who's going to make the Olympic team and that would have been a victory in itself and uh, I got, I caught him at the tape about two inches so I knew that I could beat him uh, the second best runner in America and this gave me the possibility of, of making the team now I didn't think about the team at that time until the next day when I got a call from the newspaper that uh, the Olympic Committee had called Torrance to tell him that I qualified for the Olympic tryouts at Randall's Island, New York. And again, it wasn't important to win. I made the team. And it's a thrill. And I'm on this ship now with all these great athletes and they were all my heroes, you know, and I'm going around meeting all the athletes. And uh got off the ship uh, at Hamburg and off to Berlin, and then they took us into the most beautiful Olympic village ever made. And it was gorgeous. Fenced in, animals running loose, lakes, stormtroopers walking through and we'd give them the Heil Hitler salute with a big laugh on our face. And they knew we were kidding. They'd salute back. If we said Heil Hitler, they'd say Heil Hitler or vice versa. And uh, so they were a lot of fun.
3: And you're listening to the voice of the one and only Louis Zamperini, raised in Torrance, California, as he said, a self-proclaimed rascal in his youth. But hearing those words, come on, Louis, get chanted by students, that recognition Well, that was all the fuel he needed. It lit a fire in this young man. And he said, it was the first wise decision in my life to become a runner. When we come back, more of this remarkable life story, Louise Amparini's story here on Our American Stories. Here at Our American Stories, we bring you inspiring stories of history, sports, business, faith, and love. Stories from a great and beautiful country need to be told. But we can't do it without you. Our stories are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. If you love our stories in America like we do, please go to ouramericanstories.com and click the donate button. Give a little, give a lot. Help us keep the great American stories coming. That's ouramericanstories.com. And we're back with Our American Stories. Let's return to Louis Zamperini and where he left off with his arrival to Berlin, Germany to compete as a 19-year-old distance runner in the 1936 Summer Olympics also known as the Nazi Olympics.
4: So I got in the semifinals and uh... Fortunately, I made the final. And the last lap comes, and I'm 50 yards behind the leaders. Something my brother had taught me when I was, I used to complain about the third lap of the mile being um, tired. And he said, well, so are the other runners. They're all human beings. They're all tired. But think of it this way. you got a lap to go about one minute. Uh, isn't one minute of pain worth a lifetime of glory? And I never forgot that. And so I opened up the last lap. And I caught the leaders coming down the home stretch, so I did come in with the leaders. And in doing so, the coach said, you just ran your last quarter in 56 seconds, which was considered uh, impossible for a distance runner. And uh, that evidently caught the attention of Adolf Hitler. He was there every day. And I go back to my box after my shower, and an officer comes over and says, um, Hitler wants to meet you. First, he asked for my name. I said, I didn't win anything. You know, he was shaking hands with the gold medalist. He said, well, he wants to meet you. So I went over to him and he just reached down, shook my hand, and simply said, the boy with, ah. He said, ah, yeah, the boy with the fast finish. And that was it. So I met the Fuhrer. didn't mean anything. But uh, my opinion of him was the same opinion that Marty Gluckman had and all the others. He looked like a comedian. And the way he acted, stomping his feet, pounding his legs and face, and mustache and all that. Uh, So that was my opinion of him. Uh, Well, the games are over. And uh, we collected souvenirs, uh, all the Olympians did, remind them of their their Olympic uh, trip, and uh, now I'm back home entering USC as a freshman. And now, 1940, Tokyo Olympics, we're all aiming for that. And suddenly we get the announcement, headlines in the papers, the Olympics are canceled. Well, it was quite a blow, you know. Uh, Adults really couldn't understand it, but for a kid who's been, aiming for four years for one race and you're gonna hit your peak of your life at that particular year that was hard to take uh, until Pearl Harbor was hit and of course we forgot all about being athletes and uh, like all other Americans we were one mind, of one accord, one purpose. Get in the war, quickly get it over with as soon as possible however I did run in Hawaii to keep in shape and even though General Arnold in charge of the Air Force Through a friend, he was a friend of mine, indirectly. Uh, But they wouldn't allow me to go back because our bomb group was a special bomb group and experimental. We were the first to use the heaviest bomb of the war for dive bombing. So we had a lot of missions up and down the Marshall and Gilberts, bombing Macon and Tarawa, and Woji and all those islands in and out. We had a few local search missions looking for submarines. And then we, we came back, and after a mission, you get a couple of days off and we're heading for the main gate, on the way to Honolulu. And uh, the operations officer comes skidding up in the jeep and says, uh, we just got a report, a B-25 has gone down 200 miles north of Palmyra. Now the cloud cover broken broke clouds are at a thousand feet, that's our search mission height. And, uh, swinging around here and there, looking for debris in the water, light brass, anything we could find, and uh, Suddenly the RPMs dropped on uh, one motor, oil pressure to zero, and uh, the pilot immediately called the new engineer, and he was so excited to do his job, he came up and nervously feathered the wrong motor. Now this plane could not fly uh, normally on four motors. He couldn't get off the ground with a bomb load. It was, uh, the Green Hornet was a a lemon. And uh, with one motor out, the plane was having trouble. And now when they feathered the wrong motor, the plane just heeled over and went down left wing first, 45 degrees, hit the water and exploded. Um, the pilot and tail gunner were fortunately blown free of the wreckage. And then as the tail snapped off, the control wires, which are heavy wires that are uh, springing, so when the wires break, they coil up. and they, So when they snapped, the, 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 the wires coiled around the tripod. I'm in the middle. I can't get loose. Now with the wires there, it's a hopeless situation. And so I just thought, well, this is it. This is it. I'm dead. And uh, so I started sinking. My ears popped. And that usually happens around 25, 30 feet. And uh, then as I sank deeper, something I never had happened before, I felt like someone put me in the scientist with a sledgehammer. And uh, then I lost consciousness. And of course I'm sinking. I'm still thinking, so the pressure's got to be getting greater. And uh, when I, then I lost consciousness. And then for some unknown reason, I'm conscious again. I'm freed. I'm loosened from that section of the ship. I'm frailing around with my arms, trying to find something to grab onto. And fortunately, my U.S.A. ring, which was on this finger, which bears the white stars still there, uh, snagged onto the waste window. And I knew that was the waste window by the feel. I grabbed with my other hand, washed my back out of the window, inflated my life jacket, and popped to the surface. And there, I saw my two buddies, uh, who were now hanging onto a gas tank. Uh, they were both in a state of shock, screaming, help. And the pilot's head was bleeding uh, profusely with a, a cut artery. And uh, no, there's no way I can help them. If I swim over to help them, we're all dead. But I saw a life raft that had ejected from the plane automatically. And so there's a hundred foot cord dragging behind me, life raft. So I'm trying to swim to the life raft with shoes on, clothes, and it's impossible. Even in a swimsuit, I couldn't have caught that life raft. The currents were that vicious. But as I almost gave up swimming, this cord was going by my face. Couldn't see it in the water. And I grabbed the last two or three feet, and I reeled in the raft, and and I got to... uh, uh the pilot co pilot, pull him aboard, uh, put a uh a three i uh, took two T shirts, made a wet compress, put on the cuts, tied it with the other T shirt very tightly so it wouldn't bleed anymore and uh, laid him back. And uh then I started thinking about that escape. That really bugged me and uh I kept thinking of any kind of a logical answer for my escape and I just couldn't find one. So I gave up thinking about it. Instead I started praying and thanking God for sparing my life. Well, my buddies saw this, they started to pray with me. And then it wasn't long after that, the tail gunner panicked and began to scream. It suddenly dawned on him what happened. We're all gonna die, he said. I said, Mac, nobody's gonna die. We're gonna die, all gonna... I said, Mac, nobody's gonna die. And then I told him to shut up. I said, if you don't shut up, I'm gonna make a report on you to, to, to the military when we get back. And uh, he still kept screaming, so I tried to use child psychology on him, and that didn't work. So I thought I'd give him a double shock, and this is the last resort—a good shock treatment. So I turned my back on, and I came around with my the back of my hand and cracked him hard across the face. He laid back in the raft, contempt, and he was okay for maybe five days or a week, and then I had to do it again. But it always seemed to work, and he never gripped it. I just laid back and seemed to enjoy. It. <laughs> so. Uh, our menu, of course, now is, uh, for the next 47 days, is uh, what birds, fish, and water we could catch. And, of course, the birds and the fish we simply ate raw. Three albatross. Well, we actually caught four albatross. We caught the first one we caught. We just ripped it open, and the smell was enough. We threw it overboard. The second one we caught, I said, we've got to eat some part of it, you know. And uh, so we took the breast, and we tried to take a bite out of the breast piece, and tried to chew it up and swallow it. We just barely swallowed one mouthful, and again we... We threw it overboard and used parts of it for bait. And we did catch a small fish. We divided that in three ways, and that wasn't bad. We all fish. And then uh, a lot of time went by before we got another albatross. Not at all got, another albatross. We opened it up, and man, I'll tell you, it was like a hot fudge sundae with nut on it. We ate everything, eyeballs.
3: <laughs> and what a story you're hearing Louis Zamperini tell. Hitler wants to meet you, he was told after that last final burst of speed and by the way he did not tell the story here of him seizing the Nazi flag and stealing it and taking it home that's a heck of a story we couldn't tell every bit and part of this story but he did it and he did it because well why not he was still well a rascal in the end he goes to USC he wants to compete in the 1940 Olympics that doesn't happen they're canceled then comes Pearl Harbor his life has changed He takes on dangerous missions and soon finds himself stranded in the Pacific with a few buddies, 47 days hanging on for dear life to be rescued. When we come back, more of this remarkable life story, the voice of Louis Zamperini from the grave, born on this day in 1917, here on Our American Stories.
0: you don't win your first bet. That's right. Up to $1500. Again, sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21+ in President Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in 7 days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER.
2: This is it.
3: And we return to our American stories and to Louis Zamperini's story. The year is 1941. While serving as a bombardier on a search and rescue mission in a B 24 Liberator in the Pacific, Zamperini's plane experienced mechanical difficulties and crashed into the ocean. Let's pick up where we last left off.
4: Before we went uh, seven days without water, on the 27th day, we heard motors, and you can imagine our excitement. We shot flares through water die in the ocean, flickered our mirrors, the plane came down and uh, flew low as they came towards us. We had our shirts off, you know, waving our shirts, tears in our eyes, boy, we're going to be with the Marines tonight on Palmyra. And then machine gunning, water splashed off, you know, coming at us and just missed us. And then I saw the red circle. I knew it was a Sally bomber, which was comparable to our B-25. And um, so that went on. They stretched us for about 30 minutes. I was in the water with two sharks while the other two stayed in the raft. And every time I came up, I knew they were dead. But they were alive, and they weren't touched, missed by an eighth of an inch, quarter inch, half inch. And this was just unbelievable. And I'm in the water with two sharks, and of course I'm t- taught how to evade sharks. The last resort is straight on me. You just stay there, they'll come up uh, slowly, they'll stop, size you up, and then they'll come at you. And you got plenty of time to get your hand up there and catch them on the end of the nose, and they usually just take off. And that worked. And uh, But after about 30 minutes, we decided we were in a hopeless situation. The raft was now wrinkled, laying flat in the water. There's no chance. we got to pretend we're dead. So we pretend we were dead. And uh, the plane evidently uh, bypasses that round, but made a big circle. And we thought they were going back to base, but they decided on one more run. And this time... As they came directly on course this time, instead of off course, I looked out of the corner of my eye and I saw the bomb bay door open. I thought, oh, this is it!" they dropped the depth charge. It was a canister. Now, we dropped bombs on submarines. They dropped a canister, and um, it lit about 50 feet away, which would have killed us. But the the, uh, canister was improperly armed and sank to the bottom harmlessly. Uh, they did turn around then and leave us, and boy, what a relief, and then we had to start pumping that raft. with sharks around, and we're right level with the water. We're pumping like mad, taking turns, and barely got the raft up again. And uh, now the holes are about the size of a 22 hole, that's a 7.7 millimeter, I think. And if you saw that inner tube pull a hole to the swimming pool, it would not sink. And that's the way, that was our situation. Then as we settled back in the raft after eight days, which it took us about eight days to get the raft uh, decently patched up, and then uh, the only real big storm we had during the entire time, and it was monstrous. The waves were like 25 to 40 feet, and that was far more frightening than the Japanese airplane and far more frightening than the sharks. And uh, we survived that. Uh, well, I should say the two of us survived that. The tail gunner died on the 33rd day, and we buried him at sea. And, uh, and so the next day, of course, there were big swells, and we're on top of the swell, and I see land for the first time. And uh, we knew we were going to drift into the islands, but we also knew these were held by the Japanese, so we had to be real careful and try to find a deserted island. And uh, we were about to land on one island when the Japanese patrol boats came around a point and spotted us. And, uh, you know, you got about 25 guys with rifles aimed at you. One guy with a machine gun... <laughs> You know, we were so bushed that we couldn't really laugh, but inside we were laughing. Then they threw us a rope and pulled us aboard. We couldn't even crawl, we were that weak, and uh, sat us on the deck of the ship and hit us with a pistol in the face, but they did give us a drink of water and a biscuit. They were taking the woji in there, weighed in at 30 kilo, about, I don't know, 65 pounds. So I lost about almost 100, and uh, there we were treated uh, decently. They pulled the raft out of the uh, from the boat and counted the holes, 48 holes, and uh, I told them. I told them the day, the 27th day on the raft, the date that the Japanese pilot strafed us. You should be able to find out who that pilot was. Oh, no, Japanese pilot wouldn't do that, but he did it. So they wouldn't accept that, even with the evidence. Two days later, we're told we're going aboard a, a, a steamer, heading for another island, and after you leave this island, we cannot guarantee your life. So we're heading for a <laughs> And we knew through the uh, scuttlebutt that it was considered execution island. We were blindfolded. The ocean, 47 days out there, all you saw was that endless sky. And the Pacific Ocean is, what, 65 million square miles, of endless ocean. Now I'm blindfolded. And when I'm inside that cell, which is two feet inches wide, by six feet deep and six feet long, they take my blindfolds off. My eyes just jump all over the place. I couldn't believe where I was. And this had a terrible effect on me. I just, uh, in the corner of that cell, I just sat there and, and I looked at my skeletal frame and just started to cry. And this was, you know, here I am. A, two months ago, I was a, a, a vigorous athlete, and here I am a skeleton. And then... Uh, uh, our new guard came on duty after about a week, and um, he simply looked in and said, You Christian, me Christian, that's all he could say. Well, in Japan at that time, you didn't admit you were a Christian, not in Japan. And, um, of course, I thought I was nice well, me, Christian, Christian. <laughs> so we started to chat on paper. We draw a picture, put a name to him, and so forth. And uh, two days later, he got his monthly candy ration, shared it with me. Unbelievable. Uh, every day, of course, we'd, in the morning, we would think about execution. Will this be the morning? Will this be the morning? And then uh, uh, an officer came in one day and said, uh, you will go to Yokohama's prisoners of war on the Japanese, with the Japanese fleet up to a secret camp in the uh, hills of Ofuna. And uh, there I'm shoved into a room and told to stand wait for further orders. And uh, so I stand there and I see the back of a, of a man's head, and then he turns around, leans back in the chair, and looks at me, and laughs, and he didn't have to say "Remember me." Uh, I knew him well at USC for three and a half years, James Sasaki. And Riley says I came back to Japan after USC and became Admiral Sasaki, that civilian rank of Admiral, uh, head of all interrogation all over Japan, 91 prison camps. And uh, we talked about USC, uh, the bacon and egg breakfast on the campus. He was talking about that kind of food, so they weren't getting it. And then he said, well, we'll see each other from time to time. They called him Jimmy. Jimmy Sasaki had a high-frequency transmitter just off of Torrance Boulevard, a short distance from the Edison substation, where he made broadcasts daily to the Japanese government. Then it says he left by boat two days before a raid by the FBI and CIA. <laughs> uh, I'm finally transferred to what they call headquarters camp O'Mori between Yokohama and Tokyo on a man-made island, and there I meet the nightmare of my life, the bird. I come in there, he lines us up, comes by, and looks at me, and I couldn't look in his eyes. I looked away, and he said, "Why you don't know, look in my eyes?" Bang! <laughs> so I'm knocked down. I get up, knocked down again. So I'm punched out every day for the first 10 days, and I knew who, who the boss was, that's for sure. And uh, so he was uh, so brutal, the other guards, we gave him vile, filthy names. We didn't give him a filthy name. We simply called him the bird, because if he did find out through scuttlebutt that we named him a certain name, then we're really in for trouble.
3: And you've been listening to Louis Amperini tell the story of his capture by the Japanese 47 days in the ocean, The sharks were tough, the gunfire from enemy Japanese planes was tough, but what was tougher is surviving a wicked storm with 35-foot-plus waves. Then he's transferred to Execution Island, he catches a glimpse of himself, and all he saw was a skeleton frame, and he just started crying. Every morning he thought about one thing, his execution. And then he's transferred to another camp, where he meets his tormentor, the bird. When we come back, more of this remarkable life story. The story of Louis Zamperini, born on this day in 1917, here on Our American Stories.
1: Go to Nix.com. That's K-N-I-X dot com.
3: And we return to our American stories and to Louis Zamperini's story. When we last left off in his story, he described a Japanese internment prison guard known as the Bird. The Bird was so deranged that General Douglas MacArthur named him as one of the most wanted war criminals in Japan. Let's continue with Louis Zamperini.
4: Now, uh, he was a uh, son of a wealthy family. He flunked out of officers' schools, they had him for officers, and uh, I can remember when we had a B-29 raid, he called all the Americans out. And he separated the officers from the enlisted men. And then he had all the lowest rank enlisted men, just to shame us, buck privates, face us, and each one had to punch us and knock us down. And they wouldn't hit us hard, they'd hit us easy, and then they'd get hit, with a club. Hey, hit us hard, knock us down, get it over with. So we had to take a full blow in the face, down on the ground, and so, that's the way he was. He took it out on officers, always. Officers got the punishment. <clears throat> but about another week went by, and I believe there were six or seven of us lined up, put on a train, and now we're crossing Tokyo. But see, in the meantime, they had the big fire raid on Tokyo, which we saw from our vantage point. We saw the sky aglow all night and half the next day, and... Uh, we put on the train, and we go right to that charred waste. And all we could save for miles, 19 square miles of charred, you know, bamboo huts or whatever, wooden shacks. But the only thing we were able to identify were the hundreds of lathes that the Japanese did. They did like the Germans. Their factory was bombed, but it didn't slow them down because the big factory, uh, in the industrial complex at the point of Tokyo, they only had part of their machinery there. The rest of it was in the civilian homes. And I remember going to the slaughterhouse to pick up our meat, which was horse guts, in a wheelbarrow. And I used to see these transformers, and I thought, my golly, for this little house, I'd look back and I'd see a lathe, great big, $25,000 lathe, and the guys working making parts. And all down the street. So it was really strange to see the only thing not burnt were all those machines. And that was the reason Truman uh, had the firebombing of Tokyo, was because that was the industrial complex. Uh, so now we're going north 12 hours to, right to Nagano and down to the ocean to N- Noletsu. And we get to the prison compound. We have to stand there to test in and wait for further order. And, and, uh, and we waited and watched the front door of the guard shack. And whoever was in there was making us wait purposely. And we waited and waited and waited. And uh, the door opened and out steps the bird. Well, my knees buckled. I just, I just couldn't believe it. I just thought, you know, I'm a guy that never gives up. But I got to the point where I just thought, yeah, it's hopeless, hopeless, I can't escape this guy. And so I got back to attention, and then I had to put up with him all over again. So then, um, uh, about uh, eight days before the war's over, we get, uh, uh, one of the guards came to me and, uh, and said, uh, a sad thing happened in Japan, uh, a city called Hiroshima, cholera broke out. No one's allowed to go in. It's quarantined. And uh, yeah, we, we thought that was sad. So the whole nation of Japan knew that Hiroshima was a city quarantined with cholera. And uh, then about eight days later, we were told to pay PW on the rope. And we'd heard rumors about the war being over for two years. So it didn't mean much. But we wouldn't believe it till we saw a TBF fly over the river. And they saw all the prisoners in the river, and they flashed on their, their red light, da-da-da, and the uh, radio man picked it up. The war's over. So then we rushed up to the compound and began to wave up the plane. He circled and circled. Then they dropped a red ribbon. On the end of it was a candy bar with a bite out of it, and, and a pack of cigarettes with two cigarettes gone. And yet 350 men got a puff of cigarette, and we all got a sliver of candy. Pretty good. That evening he came back and we looked like a body falling. It was a pair of Navy pants tied at the bottom and top and carton of cigarettes and candy. And, and uh, Commander Fitzgerald of the, of the Grenadier Submarine, uh, the ranking officer, he opened the pants and right on the top was a magazine. And he just stood there silently looking at that picture of the atomic bomb because we'd never heard of it. And he kept looking at it, and the other officers walked up. We all looked over his shoulder and looked at that picture. And then I realized the date of, uh, of the cholera at Hiroshima. Uh, the same date, so actually what happened with the bomb, and the Japanese uh, uh, pulled the eyes over the general public by telling him it was cholera. Which was the best thing they could have done. So, finally, um, the bird... Uh, two days before we knew, actually knew the war was over, the bird disappeared and because uh, we had a seventy pound rock on the second floor right over the river and a rope we had it hidden away in the bulk of the building and we were going to grab him, tie the rock on him and throw him over into the river and that was, that was our intention but he flew the coop so we didn't see him again and the other guards all started bowing and scraping and, and uh, and we talked sorry our farm, and, and we knew they had families at home. that weren't eating too well. And typical American, we started giving the guards food to take home for their children and stuff like that, candy. In fact, when the war was over, sleeping in tents on the way home, I still had nightmares about the bird. I, I'm Italian, I have to have revenge, and when he's torturing me and punishing me, I'm getting revenge in my heart. And when my hands are clenched, I got him by the throat, and that was in my dreams every night, every night, every night. I got home. It was the same thing at home. I got married. I still had the nightmares. In the meantime, I started drinking because of that. But before I started drinking heavily, I started training for the 48 Olympics. And I did get in good shape. And uh, then when I had uh, my knee give out, and my ankle, and a muscle spasm, or like an explosion in my calf, Uh, I couldn't train anymore, and I gave that up. And that really hurt me, and uh, so I started drinking more and more, and my wife decided it's time for a divorce, and uh, somebody in our apartment house uh, was telling about a fellow named Billy Graham. We never heard of him. They talked my wife into going down to hear Billy Graham. He made a decision for the Lord, came home that night, tried to talk me into it, and I said, keep away from her. I don't want to hear any more about religion, and, uh, but she said something that really struck me in the heart, and that was, and because of my decision, I'm not going to get a divorce. So that was good news. And uh, But the next day, she was all over me, and I refused to go. Finally, they more or less tricked me into going down to here, Billy, And there he's preaching, you know, for all of sin. Well, I knew I was a sinner. Uh, well, I didn't like the idea of him reminding me. And it just gave, you know, gave me an excuse to leave. I got mad, grabbed my wife, pulled her home, and, and the next day, she's all over me again. And uh, so I finally consented on a return trip. And I said, well, when he... Finishes his sermon and says, every head bowed, I'm getting out. Okay. So back we went and um, kept quoting scripture from the Bible. And uh, and I knew what I should do, but I didn't want to do it. And uh, then as I started to leave the tent, I started thinking back on the the raft. When our lives were spared, we did pray morning, noon, and night. And we prayed constantly on the raft. Uh, My prayer was always God save my life, and I'll seek you and serve you. And here I am, home alive, my prayers were answered, and they completely turned my back on those promises. That hit me pretty hard before I got to the aisle where I decided to turn out no. I stopped momentarily, made my decision, went back to the prayer room, and made my confession of faith in Christ, and there a miracle took place. My life completely changed. I had a turnabout. I knew that I was through getting drunk, I knew it obviously for myself. I knew I'd forgiven all my guards. I knew I'd forgiven the bird, and I think proof of that was that that night I didn't have a nightmare for the first time. And it's been two and a half years, and I haven't, uh, and since the war, and I had a nightmare every night, and now from 1949 till this day, I have still never had a nightmare or even the slightest inkling of a nightmare. And uh, so when I met with the studio to make the movie with Universal. The producer was hearing all the things the bird did to me, and I'm sitting at this meeting like this, listening to these fellows talk. And finally, he's getting really uptight, and he jumped up and he said, Louie, Louie, how could you forgive that so-and-so? And I stood up and I said, Well, I can only give you one verse in the Bible, why I could forgive him. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new person. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And he looked at me, and I didn't know what he was going to do. And he rushed over and grabbed me, around the waist, picked me up and said, we're gonna make this into a major film. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty, pretty neat, him being Jewish and not mentioning Christ. So that was the, that, the climax, that was just beautiful. So that's my story.
3: And what a voice you just heard. That is Louis Zamperini from the grave in heaven, sharing his story for all to hear about how Jesus saved his life, made those nightmares disappear, and renewed his life and his marriage. And a special thanks to Greg Hengler, as always, for the editing on that piece. And thanks to Vision Video. God, save my life, and I will seek and serve you. He prayed on that boat. I turned my back on God, but then I came to Christ. My life completely changed. I forgave the bird. My nightmares ended. Louis Zamperini, born on this day in 1917, here on Our American Stories.
0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on AE Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports and find crowd pleasing bops on iheart radio's hit nation playlist there's new free shows and movies to love every week say free this week in your xfinity voice remote